Welcome to The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. We are continuing to read at page 122 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature. But study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now, to SWRB's reading of The Bondage of the Will, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, the truth and the life and no man cometh unto the Father but by him John 14.6 and now page 122 discussion first part section 41 and first of all let us begin regularly with your definition according to which you define free will thus moreover I consider free will in this light that it is a power in the human will by which a man may apply himself to those things which lead unto eternal salvation or turn away from the same. With a great deal of policy indeed, you have here stated a mere naked definition without declaring any part of it, as all others do, because perhaps you feared more shipwrecks than one. I therefore am compelled to state the several parts myself, The thing defined itself, if it be closely examined, has a much wider extent than the definition of it, and such a definition the sophist would call faulty, that is, when the definition does not fully embrace the thing defined. For I have shown before that free will cannot be applied to anyone but to God only. You may perhaps rightly assign to man some kind of will, but to assign unto him free will in divine things is going too far. For the term free will in the judgment of the years of all means that which can and does do Godward, whatever it pleases, restrainable by no law and no command. But you cannot call him free who is a servant acting under the power of the Lord. How much less then can we rightly call men or angels free who so live under the all-overruling command of God, to say nothing of sin and death, that they cannot consist one moment by their own power. Here then, at the outset, the definition of the term and the definition of the thing termed militate against each other, because the term signifies one thing, and the thing termed is, by experience, found to be another. It would indeed be more properly termed vertible will or mutable will. 
For in this way, Augustine, and after him the Sophists, diminished the glory and force of the term free, adding thereby this detriment, that they assign vertibility to free will. And it becomes us thus to speak, lest by inflated and lofty terms of empty sound we should deceive the hearts of men. And, as Augustine also thinks, we ought to speak according to a certain rule, in sober and proper words. For in teaching, simplicity and propriety of argumentation is required, and not high-flown figures of rhetorical persuasion. Section 42. But that we might not seem to delight in a mere war of words, we cede to that abuse, though great and dangerous, that free will means vertible will. We will cede also that to Erasmus, where he makes free will a power of the human will, as though angels had not a free will too, merely because he designed in this book to treat only on the free will of men. We make this remark, otherwise, even in this part, the definition would be too narrow to embrace the thing defined. We come then to those parts of the definition which are the hinge upon which the matter turns. Of these things, some are manifest enough. The rest shun the light, as if conscious to themselves that they had everything to fear, because nothing ought to be expressed more clearly and more decisively than a definition. For to define obscurely is the same thing as defining nothing at all. The clear parts of the definition, then, are these. Power of human will, and by which a man can, and also unto eternal salvation. But these are antipathe, to apply, and to those things which lead, also to turn away. What shall we divine that this to apply means? And this to turn away also. And also what these words mean which pertain unto eternal salvation. Into what dark corner have these withdrawn their meaning? I seem as if I were engaged in dispute with a very Scotinian or with Heraclitus himself so as to be in the way of being worn out by a twofold labor. First, that I shall have to find out my adversary by groping and feeling about for him in pits and darkness, which is an enterprise both adventurous and perilous. And if I do not find him, to fight to no purpose with ghosts and beat the air in the dark. And secondly, if I should bring him out into the light, that then I shall have to fight with him upon equal ground when I am already worn out with hunting after him. I suppose, then, what you mean by the power of the human will is this. A power or faculty or disposition or aptitude to will or not to will, to choose or refuse, to approve or disapprove, and what other actions soever belong to the will. Now then, what it is for this same power to apply itself or to turn away I do not see, unless it be the very willing or not willing, choosing or refusing, approving or disapproving, that is, the very action itself of the will. But may we suppose that this power is a kind of medium between the will itself and the action itself, such as that by which the will itself allures forth the action itself of willing or not willing, or by which the action itself of willing or not willing is allured forth. Anything else besides this it is impossible for one to imagine or think of. 
And if I am deceived, let the fault be my author's who has given the definition, not mine who examine it. For it is justly said among lawyers, his words who speaks obscurely, when he can speak more plainly, are to be interpreted against himself. And here I wish to know nothing of our moderns and their subtleties, for we must come plainly to close quarters in what we say, for the sake of understanding and teaching. And as to those words which lead unto eternal salvation, I suppose by them are meant the words and works of God, which are offered to the human will, that it might either apply itself to them or turn away from them. But I call both the law and the gospel the words of God. By the law, works are required, and by the gospel, faith. For there are no other things which lead either unto the grace of God or unto eternal salvation, but the word and the work of God. Because grace, or the Spirit, is the life itself to which we are led by the word and the work of God. Section 43. But this life or salvation is an eternal matter, incomprehensible to the human capacity. As Paul shows out of Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. For when we speak of eternal life, we speak of that which is numbered among the chiefest articles of our faith. And what free will avails in this article, Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 2.10. Also, God saith he, hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. As though he had said, the heart of no man will ever understand or think of any of those things unless the Spirit shall reveal them. So far is it from possibility that he should ever apply himself unto them or seek after them. Look at experience. What have the most exalted minds among the nations thought of a future life and of the resurrection? Has it not been that the more exalted they were in mind, the more ridiculous the resurrection and eternal life have appeared to them? Unless you mean to say that the philosophers and Greeks at Athens who, Acts 17:18 called Paul as he taught these things, a babbler, at a set or forth of strange gods, were not of exalted minds. Porteus Festus in Acts 26:24 calls out that Paul is mad on account of his preaching eternal life. What does Pliny bark forth in Book 7? What does Lucian also, that mighty genius, were not they men wondered at? Moreover, to this day, there are many who, the more renowned they are for talent and erudition, the more they laugh at this article, and that openly, considering it a mere fable. And certainly no man upon earth, unless imbued with the Holy Spirit, ever secretly knows or believes in or wishes for eternal salvation, how much soever he may boast of it by his voice or by his pen. And may you and I, friend Erasmus, be free from this boasting leaven. So rare is a believing soul in this article. Have I got the sense of this definition? Section 44. Upon the authority of Erasmus, then, free will is a power of the human will which can of itself will and not will to embrace the word and work of God by which it is to be led to those things which are beyond its capacity and comprehension. If then it can will and not will, it can also love and hate. And if it can love and hate, it can, to a certain degree, do the law 
and believe the gospel. For it is impossible if you can will and not will that you should not be able by that will to begin some kind of work even though from the hindering of another you should not be able to perfect it. And therefore, as among the works of God which lead to salvation, death, the cross, and all the evils of the world are numbered, human will can will its own death and perdition. Nay, it can will all things while it can will the embracing of the word and work of God. For what is there that can be anywhere beneath, above, within, and without the word and work of God but God himself? And what is there here left to grace and the Holy Spirit? This is plainly to ascribe divinity to free will. For to will to embrace the law and the gospel, not to will sin and to will death, belongs to the power of God alone, as Paul testifies in more places than one. Wherefore, no one since the Pelagians has written more rightly concerning free will than Erasmus. For I have said above that free will is a divine term and signifies a divine power. But no one hitherto except the Pelagians has ever assigned to it that power. Hence Erasmus by far outstrips the Pelagians themselves, for they assign that divinity to the whole of free will, but Erasmus to the half of it only. They divide free will into two parts, the power of discerning and the power of choosing, assigning the one to reason and the other to will. And the sophists do the same. But Erasmus, setting aside the power of discerning, exalts the power of choosing alone, and thus makes a lame, half-membered free will, God himself. What must we suppose then he would have done had he set about describing the whole of free will? But not contented with this, he outstrips even the philosophers. For it has never yet been settled among them whether or not anything can give motion to itself. And upon this point, the Platonics and Peripatetics are divided in the whole body of philosophy. But according to Erasmus, free will not only of its own power gives motion to itself, but applies itself to those things which are eternal, that is, which are incomprehensible to itself. A new and unheard of definer of free will, truly, who leaves the philosophers, the Pelagians, the Sophists, and all the rest of them far behind him. Nor is this all. He does not even spare himself, but dissents from and militates against himself more than against all the rest together. For he had said before that the human will is utterly ineffective without grace, unless perhaps this was said only in joke. But here, where he gives a serious definition, he says that the human will has that power by which it can effectively apply itself to those things which pertain unto eternal salvation that is, which are incomparably beyond that power. So that in this part, Erasmus outstrips even himself. Section 45. Do you see, friend Erasmus, that by this definition, you, though unwittingly, I presume, betray yourself and make it manifest that you either know nothing of these things whatever or that, without any consideration and in a mere air of contempt, you write upon the subject not knowing what you say nor whereof you affirm. And as I said before, you say less about and attribute more to free will than all others put together. For you do not describe the whole of free will, and yet you assign unto it all things. The opinion of the sophists, or at least of the father of them, Peter Lombard, is far more tolerable. He says, 
free will is the faculty of discerning and then choosing also good, if with grace, but evil, if grace be wanting. He plainly agrees in sentiment with Augustine that free will of its own power cannot do anything but fall, nor avail unto anything but to sin. Wherefore Augustine also, in Book 2, against Julian, calls free will under bondage rather than free. But you make the power of free will equal in both respects, that it can, by its own power, without grace, both apply itself unto good and turn itself from evil. For you do not imagine how much you assign unto it by this pronoun itself and by itself when you say can apply itself. For you utterly exclude the Holy Spirit with all his power as a, as a thing superfluous and unnecessary. Your definition, therefore, is condemnable even by the sophists who were they not so blinded by hatred and fury against me would be enraged at your book rather than at mine. But now, as your intent is to oppose Luther, all that you say is holy and Catholic, even though you speak against both yourself and them. So great is the patience of holy men. Not that I say this as approving the sentiments of the sophists concerning free will, but because I consider them more tolerable, for they approach nearer to the truth. For though they do not say, as I do, that free will is nothing at all, yet since they say that it can of itself do nothing without grace, they militate against Erasmus. Nay, they seem to militate against themselves and to be tossed to and fro in a mere quarrel of words, being more earnest for contention than for the truth, which is just as sophists should be. But now, let us suppose that a sophist of no mean rank were brought before me with whom I could speak upon these things apart in familiar conversation, and should ask him for his liberal and candid judgment in this way. If anyone should tell you that that was free, which of its own power could only go one way, that is, the bad way, and which could go the other way indeed, that is, the right way, but not by its own power, nay, only by the help of another, could you refrain from laughing in his face, my friend? For in this way, I will make it appear that a stone or a log of wood has free will, because it can go upwards and downwards, although by its own power, it can only go downwards, but can go upwards only by the help of another. And, as I said before, by meaning at the same time the thing itself, and also something else which may be joined with it or added to it, I will say consistently with the use of all words and languages, all men are no man, and all things are nothing. Thus, by a multiplicity of argumentation, they at last make free will free by accident, as being that which may at some time be set free by another. But our point in dispute is concerning the thing itself, concerning the reality of free will. If this be what is to be solved, there now remains nothing. Let them say what they will, but the empty name of free will. The sophists are deficient also in this. They assign to free will the power of discerning good from evil. Moreover, they set light by regeneration and the renewing of the spirit and give that other external aid, as it were, to free will. But of this hereafter, let this be sufficient concerning the definition. Now, let us look into the arguments that are to exalt this empty thing of term. Section 46. 
First of all, we have that of Ecclesiasticus 15, verses 15 through 18. God, from the beginning, made man and left him in the hand of his own counsel. He gave him also his commandments and his precepts, saying, If thou wilt keep my commandments and wilt keep continually the faith that pleaseth me, they shall preserve thee. He hath set before thee fire and water, and upon which thou wilt stretch forth thine hand. Before man is life and death, good and evil, and whichsoever pleases him shall be given unto him. Although I might justly refuse this book, yet nevertheless I receive it, lest I should with loss of time involve myself in a dispute concerning the books that are received into the canon of the Hebrews, which can and you do not a little reproach and deride when you compare the Proverbs of Solomon and the love song, as with a double-meaning sneer, you call it, with the two books, Esdras and Judith, the history of Susanna, of the dragon, and the book of Esther, though they have this last in their canon, and according to my judgment, it is much more worthy of being there than any one of those that are considered not to be in the canon. But I would briefly answer you here in your own words. The scripture in this place is obscure and ambiguous. Therefore, it proves nothing to a certainty. But however, since I stand in the negative, I call upon you to produce that place which declares in plain words what free will is and what it can do. And this perhaps you will do by about the time of the Greek calends. In order to avoid this necessity, you spend many fine sayings upon nothing, and moving along on the tiptoe of prudence, you cite numberless opinions concerning free will, and make of Pelagius almost an evangelist. Moreover, you vamp up a fourfold grace so as to assign a sort of faith and charity even to the philosophers, and also that new fable, a threefold law of nature, of works, and of faith, so as to assert with all boldness that the precepts of the philosophers agree with the precepts of the gospel. Again, you apply that of Psalm 4.6, the light of thy countenance is settled upon us, which speaks of the knowledge of the very countenance of the Lord, that is, of faith, to blinded reason. All which things together, if taken into consideration by any Christian, must compel him to suspect that you are mocking and deriding the doctrines and religion of Christians. For to attribute these things as so much ignorance to him who has illustrated all our doctrines with so much diligence and stored them up in memory appears to me very difficult indeed. But however, I will here abstain from open exposure, contented to wait until a more favorable opportunity shall offer itself. Although I entreat you, friend Erasmus, not to tempt me in this way like one of those who say, Who sees us? For it is by no means safe in so great a matter to be continually mocking everyone with fertumnities of words. But to the subject. Section 47. Out of the one opinion concerning free will, you make three. You say that the first opinion of those who deny that man can will good without special grace, who deny that it can begin, who deny that it can make progress, perfect, etc., seems to you severe though it may be very probable. And this you prove as leaving to man the desire and the effort, but not leaving what is to be ascribed to his own power. That the second opinion of those who contend that free will avails unto nothing but to sin, and that grace alone works good in us, etc., is more severe still. And thirdly, that the opinion of those who say that free will is an empty term for that God works in us both good and evil is most severe. And that 
it is against these last that you profess to write. Do you know what you're saying, friend Erasmus? You are here making three different opinions as if belonging to three different sects, because you do not know that it is the same subject handled by the same professors of the same sect, only by different persons in a different way and in other words. But let me just put you in remembrance and set before you the yawning inconsiderateness or stupidity of your judgment. How does that definition of free will, let me ask you, which you gave us above, square with this first opinion which you confess to be very probable? For you said that free will is a power of the human will by which a man can apply himself unto good. Whereas here you say and approve the saying that man without grace cannot will good. The definition, therefore, affirms what its example denies. And hence, there are found in your free will both a yea and nay, so that in one and the same doctrine and article, you approve and condemn us, and approve and condemn yourself. For do you think that to apply itself to those things which pertain unto eternal salvation, which power your definition assigns to free will, is not to do good? when if there were so much good in free will that it could apply itself unto good, it would have no need of grace? Therefore, the free will which you define is one, and the free will you defend is another. Hence, then, Erasmus, outstripping all others, has two free wills, and they militating against each other. Section 48 But setting aside that free will which the definition defines, let us consider that which the opinion proposes us contrary to it. You grant that man without a special grace cannot will good. For we are not now discussing what the grace of God can do, but what man can do without grace. You grant then that free will cannot will good. This is nothing else but granting that it cannot apply itself to those things which pertain unto eternal salvation, according to the tune of your definition. Nay, you say a little before that the human will after sin is so depraved that having lost its liberty it is compelled to serve sin and cannot recall itself into a better state. And if I'm not mistaken, you make the Pelagians to be of this opinion. Now then I believe my Proteus has here no way of escape. He's caught and held fast in plain words that the will, having lost its liberty, is tied and bound a slave to sin. O noble free will, which, having lost its liberty, is declared by Erasmus himself to be the slave of sin. When Luther asserted this, nothing was ever heard of so absurd. Nothing was more useless than that this paradox should be proclaimed abroad. So much so that even a diatribe must be written against him. But perhaps no one will believe me that these things are said by Erasmus. If the diatribe be read in this part, it will be admired, but I do not so much admire it. For he who does not treat this as a serious subject, and is not interested in the cause, but is in mind alienated from it, and grows weary of it, cold in it, and disgusted with it, how shall not such an one everywhere speak absurdities, follies, and contrarieties, while as one drunk or slumbering over the cause, he belches out into the midst of his snoring, it is so, it is not so, just as the different words sound against his ears. And therefore, it is that rhetoricians require a feeling of the subject in the person discussing it. 
much more than does theology require such a feeling that it may make the person vigilant, sharp, intent, prudent, and determined. If therefore free will without grace, when it has lost its liberty, is compelled to serve sin and cannot will good, I should be glad to know what that desire is, what that endeavor is, which that first probable opinion leaves it. It cannot be a good desire or a good endeavor because it cannot will good as the opinion affirms and as you grant. Therefore, it is an evil desire and an evil endeavor that is left which, when the liberty is lost, is compelled to serve sin. But above all, what, I pray, is the meaning of this saying? This opinion leaves the desire and the endeavor but does not leave what is to be ascribed to its own power. Who can possibly conceive in his mind what this means? If the desire and the endeavor be left to the power of free will, how are they not ascribed to the same? If they be not ascribed to it, how can they be left to it? Are then that desire and that endeavor before grace left to grace itself that comes after and not to free will so as to be at the same time left and not left to the same free will? If these things be not paradoxes, or rather enormities, then pray, what are enormities? Section 49. But perhaps the diatribe is dreaming this, that between these two, can will good and cannot will good, there may be a medium, seeing that to will is absolute, both in respect of good and evil. So that thus, by a certain logical subtlety, we may steer clear of the rocks and say, in the will of man there is a certain willing, which cannot indeed will good without grace, but which nevertheless, being without grace, does not immediately will nothing but evil, but is a sort of mere abstracted willing, vertible, upwards unto good by grace, and downwards into evil by sin. But then, what will become of that which you have said, that when it has lost its liberty, it is compelled to serve sin. What will become of that desire and endeavor which are left? Where will be that power of applying itself to those things which pertain unto eternal salvation? For that power of applying itself unto salvation cannot be a mere willing, unless the salvation itself be said to be a nothing. Nor again can that desire and endeavor be a mere willing, for desire must strive and attempt something, as good perhaps, and cannot go forth into nothing, nor be absolutely inactive. In a word, which way soever the diatribe turns itself, it cannot keep clear of inconsistencies and contradictory assertions, nor avoid making that very free will which it defends as much a bond captive as it is a bond captive itself. For in attempting to liberate free will, it is so entangled that it is bound together with free will in bonds indissoluble. Moreover, it is a mere logical figment that in man there is a medium, a mere willing, nor can they who assert this prove it. It arose from an ignorance of things and an observance of terms, as though the thing were always in reality as it is set forth in terms. And there are with the sophists many such misconceptions. Whereas the matter, rather, stands as Christ saith, He that is not with me is against me. Matthew 12.30 He does not say, He that is not with me is yet not against me, 
but in the medium. For if God be in us, Satan is from us, and it is present with us to will nothing but good. But if God be not in us, Satan is in us, and it is present with us to will evil only. Neither God nor Satan admit of a mere abstracted willing in us. But as you yourself rightly said, when our liberty is lost, we are compelled to serve sin. That is, we will sin and evil. We speak sin and evil. We do sin and evil. Behold then, invincible and all-powerful truth has driven the witless diatribe to that dilemma and so turned its wisdom into foolishness that whereas its design was to speak against me, it is compelled to speak for me against itself. Just in the same way as free will does anything good. For when it attempts so to do, the more it acts against evil, the more it acts against good. So that the diatribe is in saying exactly what free will is in doing. Though the whole diatribe itself is nothing else but a notable effort of free will, condemning by defending and defending by condemning. That is, being a twofold fool while it would appear to be wise. This then is the state of the first opinion compared with itself. It denies that a man can will anything good, but yet that a desire remains. Which desire, however, is not his own. Section 50. Now, let us compare this opinion with the remaining two. The next of these is that opinion more severe still, which holds that free will avails unto nothing but to sin. And this indeed is Augustine's opinion, expressed as well in many other places, as more especially in his book Concerning the Spirit and the Letter in, if I mistake not, the fourth or fifth chapter where he uses those very words. The third is that most severe opinion that free will is a mere empty term and that everything which we do is done from necessity under the bondage of sin. It is with these two that the diatribe conflicts. I here observe that perhaps it may be that I am not able to discuss this point intelligibly from not being sufficiently acquainted with the Latin or with the German. But I call God to witness that I wish nothing else to be said or to be understood by the words of the last two opinions than what is said in the first opinion. Nor does Augustine wish anything else to be understood, nor do I understand anything else from his words than that which the first opinion asserts. So that the three opinions brought forward by the diatribe are with me nothing else than my one sentiment. For when it is granted and established that free will having once lost its liberty, is compulsively bound to the service of sin and cannot will anything good, I, from these words, can understand nothing else than that free will is a mere empty term whose reality is lost. And a lost liberty, according to my grammar, is no liberty at all. And to give the name of liberty to that which has no liberty is to give it an empty term. If I am wrong here, let him set me right who can. If these observations be obscure or ambiguous, let him who can illustrate and make them plain. I, for my part, cannot call that health which is lost health. And if I were to ascribe it to one who was sick, I should think I was giving him nothing else than an empty name. But away with these enormities of words. For who would bear such an abuse of the manner of speaking as that we should say a man has free will and yet at the same time assert that when that liberty is once lost, 
he is compulsively bound to the service of sin and cannot will anything good. These things are contrary to common sense and utterly destroy the common manner of speaking. The diatribe is rather to be condemned, which in a drowsy way foists forth its own words without any regard to the words of others. It does not, I say, consider what it is, nor how much it is to assert that man, when his liberty is lost, is compelled to serve sin and cannot will anything good. For if it were at all vigilant or observant, it would plainly see that the sentiment contained in the three opinions is one and the same, which it makes to be diverse and contrary. For if a man, when he has lost his liberty, is compelled to serve sin and cannot will good, what conclusion concerning him can be more justly drawn than that he can do nothing but sin and will evil? And such a conclusion the sophists themselves would draw, even by their syllogisms. Wherefore, the diatribe, unhappily, contends against the last two opinions and approves the first, whereas that is precisely the same as the other two. And thus again, as usual, it condemns itself and approves my sentiments in one and the same article. Section 51. Let us now come to that passage in Ecclesiasticus, and also with it compare that first probable opinion. The opinion saith, free will cannot will good. The passage in Ecclesiasticus is adduced to prove that free will is something and can do something. Therefore, the opinion which is to be proved by Ecclesiasticus asserts one thing, and Ecclesiasticus, which is adduced to prove it, asserts another. This is just as if anyone setting about to prove that Christ was the Messiah should adduce a passage which proves that Pilate was governor of Syria, or anything else equally discordant. It is in the same way that free will is here proved. But not to mention my having above made it manifest that nothing clear or certain can be said or proved concerning free will as to what it is or what it can do, it is worthwhile to examine the whole passage thoroughly. First, he saith, God made man in the beginning. Here he speaks of the creation of man. Nor does he say anything as yet concerning either free will or the commandments. Then he goes on, and left him in the hand of his own counsel. And what is here? Is free will built upon this? But there is not here any mention of commandments for the doing of which free will is required. Nor do we read anything of this kind in the creation of man. If anything be understood by the hand of his own counsel, that should rather be understood, which is in Genesis 1 and 2, that man was made Lord of all things, that he might freely exercise dominion over them. And as Moses saith, let us make man and let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea. Nor can anything else be proved from those words. For it is in these things only that man may act of his own will, as being subject unto him. And moreover, he calls this man's counsel, in contradiction, as it were, to the counsel of God. But after this, when he has said that man was made and left thus in the hand of his own counsel, he adds, he added moreover his commandments and his precepts. Unto what did he add them? Certainly unto that counsel and will of man, and over and above unto that constituting of his dominion over other things, by which commandments he took from man the dominion over one part of his creatures, and that is over the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and willed rather that he should not be free. Having added the commandments, he then comes to the will of man towards God and towards the things of God. 
if thou wilt keep the commandments, they shall preserve thee, etc. From this part, therefore, if thou wilt, begins the question concerning free will. So that from Ecclesiasticus, we learn that man is constituted as divided into two kingdoms. The one is that in which he is led according to his own will and counsel, without the precepts and the commandments of God, that is, in those things which are beneath him. Here he has dominion and is Lord, as left in the hand of his own counsel. Not that God so leaves him to himself, as that he does not cooperate with him, but he commits unto him the free use of things according to his own will, without prohibiting him by any laws or injunctions. As we may say, by way of similitude, the gospel has left us in the hands of our own counsel, that we may use and have dominion over all things as we will. But Moses and the Pope left us not in that counsel, but restrained us by laws, and subjected us rather to their own will. But in the other kingdom, he is not left in the hand of his own counsel, but is directed and led according to the will and counsel of God. And as in his own kingdom, he is led according to his own will, without the precepts of another, so in the kingdom of God, he is led according to the precepts of another, without his own will. And this is what Ecclesiasticus means when he says, he added moreover his commandments and his precepts, saying, if thou wilt, etc. If therefore these things be satisfactorily clear, I have made it fully evident that this passage of Ecclesiasticus does not make for free will, but directly against it seeing that it subjects man to the precepts and will of God and takes from him his free will. But if they be not satisfactorily clear, I have at least made it manifest that this passage cannot make for free will, seeing that it may be understood in a sense different from that which they put upon it. That is, in my sense already stated, which is not absurd, but most holy and in harmony with the whole scripture. Whereas, their sense militates against the whole scripture and is fetched from this one passage only, contrary to the tenor of the whole scripture. I stand therefore secure in the good sense, the negative of free will, until they shall have confirmed their strained and forced affirmative. When therefore Ecclesiasticus says, If thou wilt keep the commandments and keep the faith that pleaseth me, they shall preserve thee. I do not see that free will can be proved from those words. For if thou wilt is a verb of the subjunctive mood, which asserts nothing, as le the logicians say, a conditional asserts nothing indicatively, such as, if the devil be God, he is deservedly worshipped. If an ass fly, an ass has wings, so also, if there be free will, grace is nothing at all. Therefore, if Ecclesiasticus had wished to assert free will, he ought to have spoken thus, Man is able to keep the commandments of God, or man has the power to keep the commandments. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com or by phone at 780-450-3730 or by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog 
If, if you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or simply swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you're on our email list, we will alert you to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc., SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. We want to thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.